Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. In his Harvard Business Review article, Stop Using the Excuse Organizational Change is Hard, author and researcher Nick Tasler says, change is hard the same way it is hard to finish a marathon. Yes, it requires significant effort, but the fact that it requires effort doesn't negate the fact that most people who commit to the change will eventually succeed. As leaders and consultants, we need to be aware that every time we say change is hard, we water the seeds of self-doubt. Instead, we should remind ourselves and our teams that we've been learning new skills and adapting to new environments literally since the day we squirmed out of the womb. Every time we feel the impulse to say change is hard, we could make a different claim that is every bit as accurate. Adaptation is the rule of human existence, not the exception. In this week's episode, we virtually travel to Australia to speak with Dr. Chris Mason. Chris is an owner and a director of several private companies ranging from 12 employees up to 800. Chris has published two books, Value to Others in 2017, as well as Change Success in 2019. Chris has been a student all of his life, and he has a degree in business and earned a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. In today's conversation, we're going to talk about change readiness, change success, and what Chris's research has been able to uncover. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Dr. Chris Mason. All right, Chris Mason, welcome to Success at Last. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jared. I think you're our first international guest. Can't complain about technology these days. We'll just literally Zoom you in here uh, over Zoom from Australia. How are things in Australia? Yeah, we're good. Uh, No COVID, business confidence is up, so we're seeing early green shoots everywhere at the moment. So it's quite exciting times. Absolutely. You think Australia's ahead of the United States in terms of COVID and the economic results that would, would follow COVID? We are, but we're a big island here. So we shut our international borders down back in March last year and made everyone coming back in, either a resident or non-resident, had to quarantine for two weeks. So we're able to keep it out. There was a couple of leakages out of quarantine hotels. But other than that, you'd almost say we were COVID-free for most of the last 12 months, which most countries weren't able to achieve. But that's, again, being a big continent, same geographic size as the US, it was easy for us to do. So I wouldn't give us any extra credit for it. It was just geographical capability, I think. Absolutely. And you said things are starting to pick up. Yeah, dramatically, I would almost say. And it's all linked to the confidence. Low interest rates, of course, help. Yeah. But plenty of opportunities. And the one thing I I do say pretty regularly is that the strong are going to get stronger and the weak are going to fail. 
So some people have, well, none of us have been through this before and some people are not coping and they really don't know what to do. And luckily there's firms like Delap around that can guide them, but most don't have access to people like you. And so they're struggling, don't know what to do. And some are choosing to bail, you know, in other words, you know, to get out of their businesses uh, because it's just become too complex. But there's a lot of wrapping up of smaller firms at the moment. So the bigger firms that have had really good times, particularly if they're in food or something like that, I found one food client of mine saying, it's been like Christmas every day for the last year. It's wow. been so amazing, the business. And their only challenge was to keep COVID out of their manufacturing plant, which they were able to do. Business has dropped a little bit at the moment. That's only because it was so high through people being locked down. We, in my state of Victoria, we had a 111 days of lockdown. So we weren't allowed out except for buying food and getting medical help, but we couldn't go more than about two miles either. So you could walk, but you had to stay very close to home. So that obviously for food people, there was people looking for a bit of excitement and they were buying specialist foods, which these guys made, you know, not fundamental stuff. It was more the, the food you'd eat when you want to cheer yourself up. So they did very well. Interesting. Well, Chris, our firm has had the opportunity to work with you for years now. And so many of us around the firm have gotten to know you, but you have a fascinating background that I wanted to introduce our listeners to. So a background in manufacturing and the service industries, a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, multi-time entrepreneur and business owner, and a multi, uh, multi-published author. You've accomplished a lot. So would you take a couple of minutes to kind of walk us through your professional kind of career arc that leads us to this moment in time today? Yeah, certainly. I think I was probably a little ahead of my time, which I'm saying that with a smile on my face, in that I changed careers and vocations pretty quickly when I was young. So I was in a quite a senior position in an electrical industry, in electrical distribution. They actually did a generation transmission and distribution. So by the age I was 28, I was head of all technical training for this 6,000 person company. So I had electrical background, but I'd, I'd studied surveying, land surveying initially. And then I had an opportunity to move interstate and work in the newsprint industry for a while. And then my big break came when I was early 30s, where uh, there was an opportunity to become CEO of an international public company that were in high powered lasers. And so I spent a lot of time in China and I had operations in the US, UK. South Africa, New Zealand, and throughout Australia. So I kind of learned global thinking at a pretty young age. And then I decided that I was making money for lots of other people. I should try and do it for myself. So in 1986, I set up a company called Mindshop, and we started doing strategy for, say, the BBC in London. And that shocked me. I thought, well, how can we do that? But we did. And it meant some radical thinking. For example, I don't charge for travel or accommodation anywhere in the world. So if I was going to London to do strategy for the BBC, I didn't charge them anything extra as if they lived in Melbourne where I live. So those sort of strategies got me off to a good start. And then some years later, once I expanded Mindshop and put some good leadership in, I set up another business called Traction IT. And my view was that there were great opportunities in the IT industry because it was going to be emerging I had a feeling about databases and data, thought about avatars, which I actually thought we'd have by now, 
that I could actually be giving advice using computer-generated people. So with my technical background, I really got my head around technology pretty early. Along the way, I happened to get invited onto a board for an HVAC company, which I became chairman of, and I'm still a director and an owner. There are 800 people, 400 mil in size. So again, that's the technology. I'd been on another air conditioning board and sold to Carrier, US company, and that was a 60 mil operation. So I've kind of just slowly grown into bigger things. I think it's a function of age as well. If you said, how did that all happen? It's because I've focused on providing value to other people the whole way, and I've never stopped trying to educate myself. So you say, oh, you've got a PhD. That's not what makes you educated. I think what makes you educated is more the type of problems and opportunities you're trying to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, I'm well-educated, I'm well-read, but it's the problems that I help people solve every day that has actually made me a reasonable operator. Combined with being older, you know, turning 72 this year, I don't feel it, I don't I don't act like it, but I do have the benefit of the experience that comes through that. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Oh, the other big achievement in my life is uh, next year I'll be married 50 years. So uh, that's something you know, even more important than the business side. In Absolutely. My mind. Yeah, you've accomplished a lot, but it didn't cost you your marriage. That's pretty awesome. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I think it's a matter of getting balanced. And there's six areas in your life. And they're all things not related to business. To me, business is the vehicle I use to get things like family, mental health, fitness, family relationships. And I also had a unique plan for my children. I've got three children, two males and female. And I decided if they wanted to, that I would guide them in their studies. So eldest son I put into database management for obvious reasons that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Then Another son I put into IT, what recommended he did. And then my daughter it was into marketing and psychology. And so each of those, the two boys are older, so they run, one runs Mind Shop and one runs Traction IT. And then my daughter, we're in the middle, she's had some children, which slowed her career down a little bit, but she's ready to go again. And we're about to put her into a business as well. They're performing exceptionally and Obviously, they inherit the business when I'm not here, and that's almost my legacy was to teach them, show them, and give them opportunities and let them surpass me in capability, which they have. So I think that's probably for any parent out there you know, struggling, working out how to best help their children. It is about education, but in the structured way that I said, rather than you know, sending them off to a college or university, I've tried to do it a bit differently. Interesting. Chris, talk to me about your decision when you were going to get your PhD in in industrial and organizational psychology. You ultimately have to write a dissertation and you chose change and change management. So I guess talk me through that decision to go back and get that PhD later in life and then ultimately your subject, your study and your dissertation. Okay. Well, I had an extra complication is that I work mostly in the US, which sounds funny, but you mentioned about the beauty of Zoom. Yeah. I went and lived in Minnesota for five months to try and acclimatize myself, and it's pretty hard there, as you know, but I picked picked summer and spring, so that was fine. I survived, had a few tornadoes as well, but I wanted to then be 
accepted into the American Psychological Association. And that meant I needed to do my PhD at a US uh, university, college. Mm. I had to pick one that was accredited so that I could get membership of the APA. So that was an extra complication. At the time, I was working globally. Uh, We're in 11, 12 countries at the moment, and that's growing. But in Ireland, I was there quite a bit in Central Ireland. I was working with accounting firms there, but I got to know some of their clients really well. And there was one guy named Andrew who I got on extremely well with. And every time I was there and I was running an event or something, he would turn up. And so I used him in the audience. It might have been, say, 150 people in the in the audience. There's one face, Andrew's, that I always recognized. And if I was wanting to ask a question, I knew he would always answer it. And he was an engineer, ran quite a big steelworks. But unfortunately, at that time, there was a, a downturn, economic downturn in Ireland, and it particularly hit the steel industry because construction dropped away. And I went out to visit his factory one day and he was in tears. And he said, I, I just don't know what I'm doing. And I, and I reassured him. I said, look, Andrew, it's all right. I do. I'm a manufacturer. I can help you. And I gave him some advice. I met his son. It was good. And I, I then, for, I can't even remember what reason, but I had less of an opportunity to go there, I guess, because I was expanding somewhere else, maybe the US. And so I lost track of Andrew. And then I heard a year or two later he'd committed suicide. And these supposition that I am pretty confident to make is that he felt that he'd failed his family by not being successful with his business and he felt he didn't deserve to live. Now, you can imagine how that made me feel. I'm studying psychology. He was a buddy of mine. Where was I when he needed me? And I went, well, in his memory, I need to pick a topic. I'm going to pick change management. And when I dug in, I found the research for the previous 50 years was two things that were interesting. One is that nothing new in management thinking had come out for 50 years. We had just moved the deck chairs around. There was nothing new. That shocked me, disappointed me, in fact. And the other thing is that in the change literature, they found that 70% probability of failure is there every time you try to do something. If you're at Delap and you're trying to build a wealth management business, what they say is you've only got a 30% chance it'll work unless you try again. And this trial and error approach, which is Andrew Guy from Ireland, obviously tried, didn't work for him. He gave up before he got there. So that cost in both financial and human terms is actually significant. And I decided, well, let's do some research. So I picked 240 leaders that worked in nine different companies and I, they were spread globally because I needed my research to what they call generalize. It needed to work at least for English-speaking countries. So I picked North America, uh, UK, and Australia. So I thought they're pretty well spread. And I found these nine organizations. The exemplar one was a US one, actually, which was nice. And it was in hospitality and property, ski resorts, golf courses, that sort of stuff. And they had from memory, 7,000 employees and privately owned. So I interviewed these 240 leaders. So the guy that ran this big company in, in the US, if I went, his name is Steve, and if I'd gone to Steve and said, Steve, why are you so successful? He would not have been able to tell me. But with my research models that I used, and I actually did two, two studies in one, doesn't matter the technology of it, but it was a kind of a double whammy where I was trying to triangulate the data to really prove that 
what I was coming up with was right, so not just one study, two. And with Steve, we were able to work out there was kind of three things that he did as the exemplar of all my leaders of the 240. When he was creating change, he always made sure he was ready. So change readiness was a really big thing. He also built the capability of himself and his 7,000 employees, still does. But the third part was the belief systems that they adopted were significantly different to other people. And when I looked at the contribution to Steve's success, 30% came from his readiness, 40% from the capability, and 30% from the beliefs. So that was interesting. And if you look at why the average firm is not successful, is they jump into change initiatives, which might be adding a new product, onboarding a new marketing manager, whatever. They don't get ready for it. They don't have the capability to do it well. And sometimes their beliefs are not helping whatever outcome they're trying to achieve. So that's it in a nutshell. But I mean, if anyone's interested in the specifics under those three headings, I can run you through. I don't know how much time you want to spend on that today, Jared. Yeah, let's do that. Before we jump into it, Chris, I'm kind of curious, I guess as 70% of these initiatives change, that's the average. If you could kind of harness this change management model where where's the kind of the upper threshold of probability of success? Okay, well, that's a good question. What we found that Steve, I won't mention his second name, he may not like it, but uh, Steve was achieving around 80%. I think from memory, you know, being PhD, I could be exact, 78.6% probability that he had to actually get it right. And so that was quite a significant thing. And he does seem to be, and you might say, oh, well, you know, he was lucky. Well, he wasn't. He took over his business when it was small from his father and he cranked it. And he's still cranking it today. He's, he's a relatively young man, but everyone's younger than me, of course. But <laughs> he's probably your age. Okay. And the fact that he's taken his business and grown it so strongly with you know 7,000 employees is, in my mind, due to him and the team that he's been able to build around him. And But he did use, not knowing he was doing it, he wouldn't be able to articulate it, but he's, he was ready, he was capable, and he had the right belief set. And he was able to recruit and train and coach people to fit with those three requirements. Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here. This weekend, I was thinking about change management. We're trying to implement a lot of change within our organization. It's hard. To your point, 70% of these initiatives left to their own demise would not work. I was thinking about this concept. I'm terrible at physics, but as I kind of think back to physics in school, this idea of like, if if I'm driving a car quickly and I turn the wheel, I can feel my seatbelt, right? Yes. It's not that the seatbelt is pulling on me. It's my body wants to keep going in the same exact direction it already was. And the seatbelt's what holds me back. And so I feel like there's some something almost like organizational physics where there's this inertia, like trying to get something from nothing going takes a tremendous amount of force. Or when you start to change an organization that's moving in one direction, you begin to kind of detect the inertia. Is that anything that you, is that crazy that I would, I'd have a thought like that? Or is that grounded in anything that you've seen in terms of our aversion, I guess, as a species or organizationally to change? Okay, well, I can 
I can keep the metaphor going with the car. Uh, I still have a GT3 Porsche race car with all the roll cage and the, oh, wow. the races and all that stuff. So I've raced a fair bit. And it's not just that inertia. What you learn as a driver very early is be careful where you look because you end up where you're looking. Oh, yeah. If you're coming around a corner and you see an obstacle like another car and you look at it, that's where you end up and you'll hit it. Or if you're looking at the fence that's getting closer, you'll end up in that fence. I've actually done that. It's very expensive. (laughs) But I only did it once. But the key insight is if a business person is more interested in looking into the past, they'll stay there, right? You have to look to the future where you want to go, and that's what your focus is. And I'm telling and when they are coaching you of driving, and I've been coached by some of the best Porsche drivers in the world, they always tell you, keep your eyes up. Do not look. You have to almost look two to three corners ahead on the racetrack. And then you just have to trust all your training and instincts will take you around that next corner. It's like a bike rider. If you're into trail bike riding, they tell you, you're going through a gate. Don't look at the gate. Look ahead of the gate. Because if you look at the gate, you're going to hit the gate. It's a human trait. It's a species thing, as you said. Yeah. And so in a business, learn from the past. Look at your financials, for example. Do some analysis, but don't focus on that. Think more about your budgets and your competitor analysis and your price points and where the market's going. That's what I focus on. And it's almost like I trust my business instincts to actually get me there. So... I'm good at growing things. Like if if people often say, what are you good at? I say, well, I'm good at growing things. It's not easy because you need a proper sales process. You need capability. Some people will build without thinking about capacity and capability. Some people have capacity and capability and have no thought about sales process. So it's another topic, but the systems you actually have in your business will help you get around the track through that gate, whatever. So I think it is human nature, and particularly at the moment, as I mentioned right at the start, none of us have been through this COVID pandemic before. And so there's some new rules being written, and you've got to then rely on your instincts. It's like if I'm on the track and it starts to rain, and and I don't like it when the track is slippery, but if I don't stay out there, I'll never get the experience of actually driving on a wet track. So you've got to stay out there and force yourself. Survival wants you to come in and wait it out, but you just got to, whether times are good or bad, you got to stick to it and there's too much at stake. But I mentioned it earlier, you learn through doing, not through reading or listening to other people. That helps, but the real learning comes from doing. You've got to be out and, and be in the game to actually learn how to be good at business. Now, you can be coached, but that coaching is only to give you the confidence to actually have a go at the more complex and serious and scary stuff. If you're thinking about changing your business at the moment, what if I rattle through the, there's five steps to being change ready. I think you'll find that if I rattle through those, you might find that that gives you your answer. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's wrestle that framework. Okay. So number one, not in any particular order, and these are all about equal, around the 6% each contrib- as a contributor to the total change success. They're not exactly that, but that's near enough. Okay. The first one is you really need your lead, leadership support, we call it. So you, your bosses have actually got to be right behind this and not just in their voice, but in their action. So if there's a 
team meeting to change something, I'd like to see the boss, particularly in Zoom, join that meeting and just sit in and say nothing. Just be there. Show support. They need to commend people for getting good jobs, you know, getting a good job done, saying, well done, guys. That was amazing what you achieved there. So that leadership support, we all know what that means, but in most organisations, because the leader's busy with other things, they just forget to do it, and that's important. The second one is people need to believe there is an actual need for that change. They have to believe that if you want to improve customer service, that there is actually a need for improving customer service. Let's take a, a more difficult one. If there's a need to reduce the price of a product, they have to understand why. Too often we just tell people that's what we're doing. We don't really think about do they understand the need for this change that we're making and do they do they believe in it? And so that probably leads to the third one, which is I called it the WIIFM, what's in it for me? I was a bit thrown by that one because I, I, I think I, well, maybe I don't think as much about that one as most people do. I do things because they, they just feel right to me, so I do things on an instinct. But maybe I do. Maybe that's what I'm really looking for. But the what's in it for me, you've got to explain to people what the personal benefit to them is. It doesn't have to be monetary, by the way. It can be career opportunity, excitement, helping community. Like I'm involved in a lot of not-for-profits. I, I set one up 25 years ago thinking every business should have one. So I did it. Yeah, that's the what's in it for me. The fourth one is we need to make sure we're using what we consider the best change process available. Now, obviously, we think MindShop, which is our change process, which is Delapse using as well, is the best, but there's no guarantees. It's just it's the best I know, and I am a world traveler, and I look, and I keep my ears open, I read a lot, but there may be someone come up with a better way. Well, then I'll try and learn from that. And but we need to be the best change process. And that was actually a competitive advantage we, we stated probably 15, 20 years ago. Uh, we have a different one now. And then the fifth factor for being ready is that people are going to be confident we can do this. And too often in the past, they've seen their leaders say, we're going to do this, and it didn't work. That destroys the confidence of the people we're going to do it this time. There's another element to confidence, of course, which is self-confidence. They don't often trust themselves to deliver because they know they're maybe a bit flaky in some area. They know they probably don't stick to things as well as they should. And so they're not confident that they can actually do that as well. So those five things, for those that are listening, leadership support, they have to see a need for change, a what's in it for me, that we're using the right change process and that we're confident in ourselves and the organisation to pull it off. If you can tick the box or look, score yourself out of 6% on each of those, that totals 30%. How much of that are you ticking to be change ready? And it probably needs to be in the high 20s. And when you're developing a plan for wealth management, for example, you probably need to go back and say, well, how do we build in those five factors into our plan so that we make sure we're ready? Because it links. Maybe I'll jump capability and go to beliefs because there's only three of those. Yeah, let's do that. On beliefs, what we found is people have to feel that the perceived difficulty is not too high. So if you're asking people to double the size of wealth management in Dilat, they might perceive that that's too hard because we haven't done it before. It brings all those lack of confidence. Uh, are we got the best change? Yeah, all the stuff for readiness kicks in. But if, it's, if they perceive it's out of their reach, they 
will weaken their resolve to actually commit to it. The second one is easily understood is their attitude. So if they their attitude to growth, for example, is not good enough in any business, retail or not-for-profit, whatever, if they actually feel that we're constrained with resources at the moment and you're asking them to grow, their attitude to the growth is, well, I'm not sure I really want to commit to this because I'm not coping now. So why would I want to take more on? And that attitude towards the being adverse to gro- growth in this case can work against and reduce your probability of change success. Then the third one I never saw coming, but it popped out of the research like you can't, the data is the data, and the data supported a third one, which was we call it significant others. Now that needs a bit of explanation. There are people in every organisation not always linked to the organisational chart that are significant and are influencers in that business. Unless those significant others are behind whatever change you're trying to achieve, it'll weaken other people's resolve because they're influenced. Now, that significant other may be, in your case, for example, your wife or partner. Mm. Whatever he or she thinks is important. And so you've got to think about what are the beliefs that the people have about the perceived difficulty, their attitude to the change, and do the significant others buy in. Now, some of those, to be honest, I'd never thought about before doing the research, but they popped out. Now, I'm so close to finishing, I can actually give you the the capability issues because they're simple. There's only two. And that is, you've got to work on the people capability. Well, that makes sense because we need to have the skill sets. But keep in mind, our latest thinking is, and since we did this research on change, it's not really the knowledge and the capability that people, that really matters. It's their behaviours. So in leaders, for example, we are really defined a matrix which is about what are the leadership behaviours you need in what areas to be successful today. And we've developed a matrix for that, which DELAP have. If anyone's interested, I'm sure one of the DELAP partners can send that out. But the second part is the organisational capability. So if you're saying we've got really capable people and we want to grow, I'd like to see what your sales process is. And when I go looking in most organisations, it's pretty rudimentary. I go look at how they price their products, I'd say 99% of firms have their price points wrong. And so the scary part of that, if they're pricing too high, they're missing out on business. But if they're pricing too low, they're leaving profit on the table. So those under capability, it's the people capability, but it's also the organisational capability. So I've, I've just, over the last 20 minutes or so, I've listed 10 factors if you went through leadership support, need for change, what's in it for me, change process, confidence, people capability, organisation capability, perceived difficult attitude and significant others, and you could lift your scores in those, then you're like Steve in the US with 80% probability of change success and you will find your life becomes really good and you can have confidence that whatever you say you want to do, you can actually do it. Now, that's assuming you've got the right strategy, which is another topic on all its own. You know, you've got to understand what your sustainable competitive advantage is. You've got to understand that as a filter to work out what your key issues are. Everyone has 200 issues. Trouble is three or four are strategic and the other 197 are just indications that you don't have the strategic issues. They're symptoms more than anything. So you've just, that's again another topic. We're not talking about how to be successful. We're, we're talking today about the conditions you need 
to be successful. Maybe another time we can talk about what you need to, to actually make it stick at the moment. Absolutely. Chris, that's super helpful. So readiness, capability, and belief system. We actually at DeLap use an assessment that, that you came up with around change readiness. If a listener is listening to this and is curious about that model of readiness, capability, and belief, is that assessment a good place to start? I think so, because it's like a health check. A health check on your change success probability. If you did it, I think from memory, there's like 25 questions. I may have that wrong. But it's a very quick and easy thing. Multiple choice, bang. Outcomes a report to you, which actually says, these are the areas you did well at, and these are the areas you need to fix to become more change ready. So it actually identifies that. And there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have completed that. And so we know it works. It's a good starting point. But remember, all it is doing is enhancing your current plans so that you can actually be successful. You've got to make sure those plans are actually right. And unfortunately, at the moment, as I've said twice already, we're going through unknown times and we don't have experience. So you know, we need to develop our plans so that we know we can win in a post-COVID new normal. Chris, let's spend a few minutes talking about that. I mean, here we are, you're on, the, on a completely different side of the world and I'm able to communicate real time with you and share this conversation with our community. You know, my kids have been going to school virtually now for a period of time. I think airline travel is is still less than 50% of what it was prior to, to COVID. So there's some changes that are temporary. There are likely some changes that are permanent. And as you're kind of reassessing strategy, you know, you're talking about change readiness as your ability to be successful within the strategy, but doesn't necessarily mean the strategy is right. So I guess sure. as you're kind of in this inflection point, what are some of the things that you're thinking about within your own businesses, as well as the clients that you're helping to advise? Well, I think it needs to be kept very simple and practical at the moment, and I can cover it very quickly. What I say to people is, okay, Jared, tell me what's working in your business at the moment, and they tell me four or five things. Then I say, what's not working? And there's a concept that was developed by your health people in psychology in the US because they were worried about the number of people that were getting help psychologically, they weren't getting to a result very quickly. So they came up with a concept called brief therapy. And basically it says, whatever's working, do more of. Makes sense. Whatever's not working, don't do more of. Don't try harder. You'll just make it worse. Try something completely different. So if I, if I take that psychological concept, which I have, and apply it to a business, which I have, what I'd say to you is, okay, what's working in your business? Let's do more of that. What's not working? Let's not try harder. Let's try something completely different. So if you you're trying to grow your business and your sales process is wrong, then don't don't push your people harder to sell more. Think about the sales process. And you need to think about things like what your products and services are and how they fit. Do you have proof of capability? Do you have a contact program? Do you have a great database? They're all elements of a, of a good sales process. And we dig into that and start fixing those things rather than just pushing our people harder through an incapable system. It makes no sense. Why would you want to grow an incapable system? Yet that's what most people do every day. So, you know, that brief therapy is what I do. And, and then as I learn, and if I was working with that firm and I would learn and I observe them, I can get more sophisticated in my 
strategic work. We have some great tools. Delap has great tools around sustainable competitive advantage, risk mitigation, product strategy, pricing, five-step pricing model. All those things are there. But, you know, right now coming out of COVID, it's do more of what's working and do something completely different for the things that are not working. It's going to fix 99% of the issues that your clients are thinking about but once they've broken the back of those, they probably need to think about being a little bit more sophisticated and getting some help on doing it better than their competitors. But a simple one, and again, Delap can provide this to you, is a competitor analysis to actually look at where the gaps are in the market. I mean, it's so simple to do. It needs to be facilitated. It probably takes about an hour, but that's all you'd have to do, get one of the Delap Mindshop trained partners in for an hour, do that. It'll be worth it. If you're worried about risk, that's another one hour. So you could do both at the same time if you had two hours. But it's very, very straightforward. But I think there's a lot you can do on your own, which is the, do more of what's working is the key and change what's not working. That would get most people by for today. Absolutely. Chris, in preparation for our conversation today, I reached out to Kyle Reynolds, who's leading our advisory service line. And I asked him what his favorite assessment was and he tossed out force field. So yeah. I, f- I figure as a, and you just mentioned sustainable competitive advantage. So uh, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about Kyle's favorite assessment, the force field. Yeah. Well, force field is the hammer in the, tool, in the mine shop toolbox. It can fix anything, but it's not always the best tool, but it will always work. I'm not much of a handyman, so that's my favorite tool <laughs> at home. But yeah, it also is my, yeah, it is my favorite tool at work as well because how it works very simply is you think of an issue you're trying to fix. Now, the key to success here is to make sure you're working on the right issue. There's a Japanese technique called five whys where, you know, you think you've got a sales problem. So why is that? You don't have the right sales process. Why is that? And you go down, you find the answer is leadership. Yeah. So don't, yeah. don't fix sales when leadership is the issue. So let's say we... While I'm on leadership, why don't we say let's we want to fix leadership? So you just draw two parallel lines vertically on a page, write the word leadership vertically down between those lines. And then you think about okay, on the left hand side are all the positive forces. What are we doing now or could do that would actually improve our leadership? So, in my mind, things are like uh, I could provide coaching, I could provide training, I could have better selection, I could give them proper performance management. That's they're not. You know, they're pretty good places to start. Now, can I tell you, if we did those, it probably won't fix leadership because on the right-hand side are all the negative forces that are actually stopping us from trying to improve our leadership capability. So just off the top of my head, unprepared, you know, what is actually there at the moment on on that right-hand side would be lack of confidence, lack of uh, use of management tools. It could be poor communication skills, and so on. So if the, a lot of the ones on the right-hand right, right hand side are kind of soft issues. So what we do is we say, we go back to the left-hand side, how can I double those? What could I do to double the training, the coaching, and all those things? But what could I do to halve the right-hand side, which is that lack of confidence? The group just dreams up answers. Whenever I do a force field with a group, I sit there with my mouth open, surprised, what comes out of it because I can't see it coming. But when you get a group using a force field to solve any issue, we double the left-hand side, halve the right-hand side, pick the three best ideas that come out of the group, 
there's our three-step plan for fixing leadership or sales or customer service, whatever we're trying to fix. That's how Forcer works. And that's why it's Kyle's favourite because it fixes anything. But the old guys like me get bored with it. And so we, we start looking for more and more sophistication. We probably only get a 20, 30%, you know, extra bang for our buck on it. But I like them all. And there's 154 tools, I think, in the Mindshop toolbox, which Kyle has. Yeah. And kind and of like an advisory craftsman, being able to yeah, craft well, solutions with all those tools. Yeah, and a lot of those, like the change one, we build ourselves through research. But a lot of, like Forcefield is not ours. That was That's out in the ethers that most people have. If you Google yeah. that, you'll find something similar yeah. to what I've described. So Chris, what? Cole knows it well. He's accredited with us, so he, he's the go-to man for any tools like that. Absolutely. Yeah, what, what I love about these tools, though, Chris, is that it's not a prescriptive thing. It's more about a facilitation it's asking the right questions within the right framework and then teasing out the, the right answer to your point, kind of the tribal knowledge yeah. that can exist within teams or organizations. Yeah. And I think the thing you keep in mind is like, for example, I had 13 years in the electrical, electrical industry, but that was so old. <clears throat> you know, even if I was in a room of people in electrical distribution, I would not dare, to, I probably wouldn't even tell them I had a background in it. So when they say, well, what do you bring to the table? I go, I know how to fix things. I know how to grow things. Yeah. What do you know? Electricity. Okay. You bring your bit. I'll bring my bit. I can grow anything. That's what I'm bringing to the table. I think sometimes it's a, a help that we don't know the industry that our clients are in because I trust them. But we know how to actually change things. We know how to grow things. We know how to make profit. But that's often what they don't know because they so, they're so in love with their technology I'm yeah. so love with business. So we both bring what we were good at to the table. Absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been a phenomenal conversation, but I'm an avid reader. And so one of the common denominators across a lot of these conversations is connecting people to, to resources. So we'll link to all these uh, assessments in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. Be sure to check out our advisory page where a lot of this information is going to be living. But Chris, as it pertains to books, are there one one to three books that you think have been most influential in your life, personally or professionally? Yeah, the one that got me going back in the 80s was one of the old Napoleon Hill books. It was actually, everyone, oh yeah, I know that one. It's, you know, Grow Rich, Think and Grow Rich. I go, yeah. no, no. He had a, a later book in, he wrote in the 70s called Grow Rich with Peace of Mind. And it was his, I think he died soon after that. That is the book to get if you can find it. Now, Thinking Grow Rich is good, but I think Grow Rich with Peace of Mind is a bit better. That was my kind of philosophical turning point. I still like stuff from Emerson and, you know, all that stuff. He wrote Theory of Compensation, for example, in 1841. It's hard to read, but I like it. I like that type of stuff. But in more recent, even Rackham's book on spin selling, and I'm not a salesman. I just believe in my product and I talk about it. But I had to almost learn what the right sales process was. So SPIN stands for situation, problem, implication, and need payoff. Basically, it just helps you frame up questions when you're trying to explain yourself. Yeah. Rather than get so bound up in all the things I love about my shop, it forces me to be more structured. So that Rackham book, on, any, any Rackham book on SPIN selling, 
And if there was a third one, it would be the, the Challenger Sale book out of the US. They, there's two, one called Challenger Sale, other one called the Challenger Customer. I think the Customer one came la- later, but both are very good books about, again, the sales process. And why am I interested in that stuff? It's because I'm not naturally good at it. I just believe in what I do and that has got me by and we're not really salespeople. We rely on word of mouth. So that's worked for us, but I should be better at explaining myself. So they're the three books. Phenomenal. Well, Chris, one of the books you wrote back in 2017 was Value to Others. I certainly enjoyed it and I certainly received a lot of value today and I think you shared it generously with others. So uh, just wanted to say on behalf of the community, thanks for uh, waking up early in Australia today to share some of your knowledge and insights with us. No, my pleasure. And always be willing to come back if you've got a slot for me sometime. Amen.